Hey, everybody. What an honor it is to be able to have this moment with you. And uh, man, I hope you can see light at the end of the tunnel. I think it's getting close. Uh, let's stay together. Uh, if you want to run and get your Bible, we're going to use it here in the next few moments. So I'm going to have a word of prayer and then we'll start. Lord, thank you so much for your goodness. Thank you for these beautiful people and the high honor we have for this moment in time. And we ask, Lord, that even uh, through this online experience, we would all sense your spirit's presence in a powerful and moving way. Speak to our hearts. In order for that to happen, Lord, hide me deep in your cross, I pray, so that we might see you and only you in your name. Amen. Well, I want to start there with a question. And the question I want to start with is this one. Uh, what would be your guilty pleasure or what is your guilty pleasure? Now, as you can tell already, this is going to be a really fun, more, fun time. But the problem, the problem is uh, some of you are oversharers. So some of you share too much and you'll share with complete strangers your deepest, darkest secret. That is not this time. Most likely you're sitting with family members or maybe you're sitting with some small group people. And so this isn't a time that you need to overshare. Share. So as you think of an answer, think of what will not scar my children. That's kind of the type thing that you want to share in answer to the question. Now, my guilty pleasures have actually changed as I've, as I've become older. Uh, when I was younger, my, my guilty pleasures were, were none of your business. Uh, but today, my guilty pleasures involve tool magazines and Cabela's. And so uh, this is such a thing for me that even when uh, we get mail at the church that has to do with tool magazines or, or Cabela's, uh, the staff that work close with me will bring and say, here's your preacher eye candy because I enjoy those so much. As the quarantine has been plodding along, I find myself uh, doing a lot of online shopping as guilty pleasure. And it's not even that I want or need the thing. It actually is that I'm just testing Amazon to see how quick they can actually get it to me. I asked a couple of staff what their guilty pleasure might be. One of them said dark chocolate was their guilty pleasure. Another said late night Taco Bell would be their guilty pleasure, which is an American institution right up there with the Smithsonian and, and Lambeau Field. Now, one of the most common confessions that I had from our staff was rather disturbing to me because it had to do with a recent documentary on Netflix featuring this gentleman, and this, was been, this has been their guilty pleasure. So here's what I want you to do. Take a moment and share a safe guilty pleasure with the people you're sitting in the room with. Go ahead. I'll wait here just a minute. Go ahead and share. Okay, no oversharing. So, so maybe some of you, maybe some of you after sharing that, um, let me see if I can get us back centered. Maybe some of you have heard of the test done by Dr. Walter Mischel. It's sometimes referred to as the marshmallow test. Here was the basic experiment of the marshmallow test. The ministers of the test would place one marshmallow in front of a child and then leave the room with this promise. If the child doesn't eat the marshmallow, they'll get another marshmallow when they return 15 minutes later. And that was the test. And the results of the test were actually pretty telling. Out of all the children tested, here's what they found out. Two-thirds of the children were instant gratifiers. In other words, if there was one marshmallow before them, as soon as the adult left, they ate the marshmallow. A third of those tested were what we, they called high delayers. And high delayers, they didn't eat the marshmallow. They waited, and then re they received the second marshmallow uh, because, uh, as a reward for their, for their discipline. What was even more fascinating about this test is that 20 years later, Dr. Walter Mischel revisited the students who had participated in the test, specifically those who would, be, would have been classified in the high-delayer category. Out of those high-delayers, 
100% of them had graduated college, were in successful careers, and had remained married to their first partner. Now, I have all kinds of questions about that test, and, and maybe those results sort of spend, send your mind spinning as well, but my point for bringing up the test is this. According to the research, there is a direct correlation between delayed gratification and personal success. There's actually a really cool side discovery uh, by Dr. Mischel that related to trust. Here's what, he, here's what he wrote. I researched trust in decision-making for adults and children. Trust is a tremendous issue. Therefore, in the marshmallow test, the first thing we do is make sure the researcher is someone who is extremely familiar to the child. Let me summarize. If the child does not trust the person making the promise, then the child eats the marshmallow right away. This reality has the potential to unlock significant areas in your life and, and my life, specifically in the area of how we relate to God. Jesus has been baptized by John the Baptist and is on the dawn of three years of public ministry than the crucifixion and resurrection that we just celebrated on Easter. So immediately after Jesus' baptism, Jesus has this experience where he goes into the wilderness, and this is the part I'd like for you to follow along in your scripture. It's found in Matthew chapter 4, beginning with verse 1. I'm going to read the whole passage, and then we'll come back and talk about it. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted there by the devil. For 40 days and 40 nights he fasted and became very hungry. During that time, the devil came and said to him, If you're the Son of God, tell these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus told him, No, the Scriptures say people do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple, and he said, If you are the Son of God, jump off. For the scriptures say he will order his angels to protect you and they will hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. Jesus responded, the scriptures also say you must not test the Lord your God. Next, the devil took him to the peak of a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. I will give it all to you, he said, if you will kneel down and worship me. Get out of here, Satan, Jesus told him. For the scriptures say, you must worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil went away and angels came and took care of Jesus. So here's the context. Jesus goes from being baptized in the Jordan River to this time of temptation in the Judean desert. Think of this period of Jesus' life, if you will, almost like a spiritual boot camp. The wilderness is where Jesus will, will prepare and be prepared for the demands of his three years of public ministry and his sacrifice. And as he heads into the wilderness, Jesus, er, Satan attacks Jesus and shows up and begins to offer Jesus food and wealth and power. And somehow Jesus is able to resist the marshmallow. Jesus doesn't give in to the immediate gratification of all that Satan offered him, which leads to the question that we all have and the question we're going to go after in this series. How, how did he do that? 
Now, most messages on this passage are going to say Jesus fought temptation by quoting Scripture, and, and that's true. Jesus does quote Scripture every time he's, he's tempted, and, and knowing God's Word and God's truth is surely a significant and vital part of not eating the marshmallow that's right before you. But there has to be something deeper going on, and I'll tell you why. In full disclosure, I have a fairly decent understanding and knowledge of God's Word. And yet, I've still eaten the marshmallow. I've still lost the battle to greed and pride and lust and anger and Taco Bell and whatever it might be. And I bet I'm not alone. I bet you have done that as well, even in those of you that know the Scripture really well. Even though Jesus had his wilderness temptation over the course of these 40 days... Even though he no doubt was hungry, the scriptures say he was hungry and thirsty, Jesus seemed to have a sense that he had all he needed and wanted in life at a deeply personal level. Which leads me to the question, do I have that sense? And respectfully, do you have that sense? What did Jesus have that is so different than those of us sitting before marshmallows today? I would suggest that the answer to the question is this. I think Jesus had a deep awareness and a deep belief in his Father's love for him. I know that sounds like preacher-like and preacher talk, but, but stay with me. Jesus didn't have some vague sense of warm fuzzies when it comes to God, when it comes to his father's love. No, when it came to how the father loved his son, this is what Jesus had. He had the father's love, and by that I mean he knew he had the father's acceptance, and he knew that made him significant. I'll say it again. When Jesus was fighting the marshmallow before him, whatever temptation that was, Jesus was so acutely aware of his father's love, which means he knew his father accepted him. And he knew that that love made him significant. And this is the place where those of us who eat the marshmallows need to camp out for a bit. What Jesus was full of in this moment of temptation is often what I find myself empty of. Believing that I am genuinely accepted by my Heavenly Father. Anybody ever doubt that? Or believing my significance is found in my Heavenly Father. Jesus wasn't rattled on either one of these fronts. So can you imagine what it would be like to go through life to go through all its trials and temptations and quarantines and fears and anxieties with this rock-solid confidence that we're accepted by God and significant because of Him? In other words, not to have any question about acceptance, not to have any questions about whether our lives matter, that would be a game-changer for us. We aren't going to settle for the immediate gratification of one stinking marshmallow If we know these things, if if we could own these truths at the core of our being, I think we would crush everything. I mean, if we could really get a hold of these as our truths and and nothing would ever rattle this, this in our lives, 
it would change everything. I think we'd be like, like dragon slayers walking around, or maybe, maybe it would look more like, more like this. These are three siblings, by the way, if you haven't seen the video. The one there is the middle child. That's the oldest one. And there goes the youngest one. Yeah, that, that's kind of how we would do it. That's kind of how we would respond. I mean, if we had that kind of, that kid's either going to be a CEO or a, like an axe murderer. It's going to be one of those two things, I think, is what the kid's going to sort of do. But would it be nice to be able to do that to the temptations that come our way? I'm fully accepted. I have significance because of my father's love. I think that'd be great. Here's the foundational truth of the hand in the cookie jar series. Believing the right things will help us behave the right way. If we just believe and own the right things, we'll behave the right way. And Jesus modeled this for us. This, this is kind of going to get us to where we're going today. And it's crucial to remember as we move forward a specific detail that happened before Jesus ever went into the wilderness. So often we, we discuss the idea of temptation and we start when Jesus was being tempted. But the story doesn't start there. It actually starts the chapter before. Matthew chapter 3, verse 16, just one chapter prior in your scripture. After his baptism, as Jesus came up out of the water, John the Baptist baptized Jesus, the heavens were opened up and he saw the Spirit of God descend like a dove and settling on him. But this is the part, we're going to read it together, nice and loud and awkward. That's what I want to do. Ready? One, two, three. And a voice from heaven said, this is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. Because of Jesus' rock-solid belief in his father's acceptance, and the rock-solid belief that that love made his life significant, Jesus introduced himself to the world in a most profound way. We see his confidence and the way he said, this is who I am. And there are actually these statements, we call them the I am statements in the Gospel of John. And uh, you can look them up for yourself, but these are kind of the I am statements in the Gospel of John. You can find them all there. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. Where does that kind of confidence come from unless somebody understands they are fully accepted and their lives have significance because of their father's love? And Jesus didn't just stockpile these things about himself. He didn't just kind of pile up so he could feel better and his self-esteem would be amazing. Because once you understand the father's acceptance in your life matters because of it, you can't just keep that for yourself. When Jesus discovered his father's acceptance and the significance of what that meant for his life, he didn't sit back and think about how amazing he is. No, when you catch a full glimpse of acceptance and significance from the father, you cannot help but give it away. You cannot help but pass it on to people. So the I am statements of Jesus become the you are statements to me and and to you. That's why Jesus was able to say, hey, you're a city on a hill. You're a royal priesthood. You are a chosen child of the king. You're a friend of God. You are a new creation. You've been set free. You're a fellow heir with Jesus Christ. 
you have been received by God. You are the righteousness of God. See, if we believe the Father loves us like he loves Jesus, then doesn't it just make sense that we'll behave like Jesus behaved? Sin, that is, giving in to all those temptations, reaching into that cookie jar, eating just the one marshmallow, drains us. It, it empties us, and you know that, as do I. So we go on looking for something else to sort of fill that emptiness, and we start thinking in ways that don't make sense because we so desperately want that one marshmallow, it consumes all of our thinking, all our sense of right and wrong. I don't know if anybody even reads Ann Lander's column anymore, but she was an advice column, and, and here's one of my favorite ones that she did uh, from years past. The letter went like this. Dear Ann, I have a problem. I'm happily married to a wonderful woman, and we have two children, but I've also been seeing another young lady for the past six months. My problem is, I love them both. What should I do? Then he adds this little tagline, please don't give me a lecture on morality, signed, confused. I love the way Ann Landers responded. Dear confused, the only difference between animals and humans is morality. I suggest you consult a veterinarian, signed, Ann. Man, what Satan offers us is so appealing in the moment. And that's because at some level it really is. A marshmallow tastes great. It's fantastic. Sin feeds some kind of appetite. But it doesn't feed a soul the deepest part of who we are. I have a part of a story I'd like to read with you. And I'm going to read it. It's a little longer than I would normally share, but it's out of a book by Donald Miller, and the book is called A Million Miles in a Thousand Years. And I just want you to listen to his perspective about a father's love, about acceptance and significance. If you're ever interested in reading it, it begins on page 86. I'll just show you the first part, and then I'll read you some. I like the part of the Bible that talks about God speaking the world into existence, as though everything we see and feel were sentences from his mouth. I feel written. You can call it God or conscience, or you can dismiss it as that intuitive knowing we all have as human beings, as living storytellers. But there is a knowing, I feel, that guides me toward better stories, toward being a better character. I believe there is a writer outside ourselves plotting a better story for us, interacting with us and whispering a better story into our consciousness. As a kid, the only sense I got from God was guilt, something I dismissed as a hypersensitive conscience I got from being raised in a church with a controlling pastor. But that isn't the voice I'm talking about, Miller writes. The real voice is stiller and smaller and seems to know without confusion the difference between right and wrong and the subtle delineation between the beautiful and profane. It's not an agitated voice, but ever patient as though it approves a million false starts. The voice I'm talking about, he writes, 
is a deep water of calming wisdom that says, hold your tongue. Don't talk about that person that way. Forgive the friend you haven't talked to. Don't look at the woman as a possession. I want to show you the sunset. Look and see how short life is and how your troubles are not worth worrying about. And then he concludes. So as I write, I become more and more aware that somebody is writing me. So I started listening to the voice, or rather I started calling it the voice and admitting there is a writer. I admitted something other than me was showing a better way. And when I did this, I realized the voice, the writer who was not me, was trying to make a better story, a more meaningful series of experiences I could live through. What if that's true for us? What if there's a writer writing our story, a better story? Let me ask you a question. Have you ever studied psycho-cybernetics? Anybody? Anybody ever studied that, psycho-cybernetics? Yeah, me neither, really. But, but the basic idea is, is this. Uh, it's, the idea is that we can actually train our brains to believe what is true, even if we don't believe it in the moment. And this is a huge thing for those of us seeking to live the with God kind of life. The way that we do that, the way we can retrain our brains, is by repeating certain affirmations on a regular basis. The science is, is over time, we will actually retrain our, our minds. Paul talked about having our minds transformed. That's what, that's what psycho-cybernetics -cyber is. And eventually what will happen is, the changing of our mind will result in the changing of behavior. So that's the takeaway this week. What if for the next week, until we gather together again, that we all work at retraining our minds to think like Jesus? And this is what we will repeat, even if we don't feel it yet, but we'll repeat it because we know it's true. And we'll tape it on our mirrors or on our remote controls or on our refrigerators or maybe on our ex exercise equipment, wherever you spend the most time during these days of quarantine. But we'll repeat it often until we can own it like Jesus owned it. Here are the two ideas. The Father's love means that I am accepted. And the Father's love means I have significance. Because everything that we read in Scripture indicates this to be true. The Father's love means you have been accepted just like Jesus. The Father's love means your life has significance, just like Jesus. Retrain your mind and fill your soul with that kind of truth. Lord, thank you so much for these good people. Thank you for the opportunity to be able to talk to them in this manner in this time. I do pray, Father, you would help us over this next week, whatever it entails, to start having checks in our hearts and minds, to start wondering what it would be like if we lived with the assurance of acceptance instead of working so hard to be accepted. What would it be like if we lived with the assurance that our lives have significance 
instead of trying to make our lives significant. Because, Father, if maybe we can get a hold of those two ideas, then maybe everything can be different. And maybe the story that you're trying to write with our lives will be so enthralling, so enchanting, so exciting for us that we cannot help but live it. In your name, amen.